Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Happy Friday. Here we are on the eve of Labor Day weekend. It seems as if this summer flew by. I didn't quite follow my mom's directions from when I was a child that you're not really supposed to wear black until after Labor Day. I'm wearing black. I'm also wearing a red that probably shouldn't be worn until after Labor Day. Those are fall colors too. My mom always told me about these fall colors, but I love color. Mixing and matching. So I hope that you have a plan for Labor Day coming into this weekend. I find so often I hear from people saying, we didn't do anything this summer. We wanted to. We wanted to take a vacation, a staycation. We're actually taking our staycation this Labor Day weekend. We took a couple extra days off. And even if you don't have some grand plans, even if you're not going somewhere, we're actually going camping for one of the nights after we hit the crowd of Labor Day weekend. And we're doing fun simple things we're not we don't even have a full plan but the intention is to not have it be a weekend that turns into chores grocery shopping all of those things that tend to eat up our downtime which are good and important but often we miss having fun it's so important that we have fun in life and enjoy things and i know i've shared i was really sick throughout this almost entire summer and so i feel like i'm having to play some catch up both because of the weather being so nice here versus in the midwest of how long winter is and also doing some making up for not getting out and about so hopefully you have some fun plans this labor day weekend i would love to hear what you're up to some fun things that we have planned simple we haven't exposed my daughter to water balloons yet so picked up a pack of of water balloons and we are going to try out my husband's fishing pole that I got him a few years ago for a birthday present. So we'll unpack those. I went and ordered some salmon eggs to go fishing. I love fishing. I used to fish all the time. I am one of three girls. It's three girls and one boy in my family. And there were two girls before the boy came along. And my dad is major outdoorsman. So I grew up fishing, hiking, all of that. Love the outdoors. So it'll be nice to try my hand at fishing again for the first time in a while. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. Joining me today on Trending will be Dr. Susan Caldwell. Dr. Susan Caldwell has a pretty phenomenal story. When I first heard about her, it was through the testimony of her story of having struggled with infertility and eventually choosing to try in vitro fertilization. She ended up conceiving and having a baby through IVF. And how I first came across her story was she was actually talking about how damaging IVF was specifically on her body. And with time, Dr. Caldwell has become a regular guest here on Trending. She has actually a medical doctor who specializes in fertility and infertility struggles. And it's near and dear to her heart because she 
battled infertility. She can share some of her story. She shared it before here on Trending. We'll actually post a link to that story here on the show. But she's chronicled you know, the connection to birth control. And then years later, when she was ready to have babies, the struggle to conceive. But what I want to talk about today is, I think, a topic that we need to be prepared and sensitive to discuss. All week, we've been talking a lot about what the church teaches on everything from NAPR technology, intrauterine insemination, artificial insemination, and gift. And I received a lot of responses from people who have experienced medical diagnoses of infertility, being told that they could not have children. Uh, some go- ranging from choosing to go through with intrauterine insemination, IVF. One man wrote me, Jonathan, this week, who was pretty upset. He wrote me on Facebook that he had testicular cancer and before the chemotherapy, he banked sperm so that he and his wife could have a baby. And they're actually expecting a baby. His wife's 21 weeks long. Praise God. We always celebrate new life, but we don't always celebrate the way that we go about achieving that new life. And he wrote me because he was pretty upset about what I said that the church teaches about IVF. I would love to just say, hey, go about any way you like conceiving a baby. I know how much we love babies and want babies, but the church challenges us to take a pause. And so to talk about that story, even though in hindsight, Dr. Caldwell has come to embrace the church's teaching on fertility, she's been there. She took matters into her own hands. And Dr. Caldwell, I'd love for you to unpack your story because I think so many people are struggling with that diagnosis of infertility. And then when they hear what the church teaches, there's a lot of hurt and anger today. Welcome to Trending. Hey, Timory. Yes, this is so important that we are talking about this because it's so painful for so many people. Um, and I really get it. I get Jonathan. I totally do. You know, I was at the time a doctor, right? And I had just gone through medical school. And to be honest, I had so much kind of, um, uh, you know, I would call it just pride around thinking that I had the power to do whatever was possible with the human body. You know, as long as medicine gave me an avenue or gave us an avenue as doctors um, in medical medical profession, I thought, well, this is great. Anything that helps the human person to be healthier or to achieve a good, um, anything goes. Right. And so my so my medical education was at a very, very high level. Right. But my understanding of my faith was probably at an eighth grade level. Right. I had no prayer life. I had no other than being raised Catholic. I didn't have an understanding of why the church taught what she taught. So that's just my my story. So we all have a place where where, we're we're coming from. I don't know where exactly Jonathan is, but that was the place I was coming from. So here I was. I had used birth control for 10 years for cramps, and um, I wanted a baby. You know, I was married um, at the time. Now the the marriage has been annulled, but um, we wanted babies. And, you know, we had this attitude. This is my life. This is what I want. And I'm not killing anyone. I'm not hurting anyone. You know, this isn't, I don't know why God thinks this is a sin. You know, and, and, and to be honest, no one really challenged me back then um, in my family or my friend circle. So I had nobody telling me to pause and think about it. And nobody was giving me like you are so beautifully, you're sharing the truth with people. I didn't know the problems until after. So you know, I just went headlong. I wanted a baby. I was impatient. I, had, I was on a time schedule. 
Um, and I said yes, yes, yes to all the things. I got really sick from the treatment that they gave me. Um, I, uh, w- w- the, the, the treatment, the IVF was extremely, um, you know, gosh, successful, if you will, from a medical standpoint. We conceived, you know, somewhere around 25 embryos. Um, and, you know, they were all graded according to the qualities, you know, um, and some were tossed away because they didn't meet certain criteria. Then I had um, three implanted, um, th- then five were f- frozen, um, but the three that were implanted uh, caused me to have a really high risk pregnancy. I lost one of the babies at nine weeks. The other two, had very, we, it was week to week whether they would make it because of all the, the hemorrhage I had in my uterus because it was just not a healthy beginning to the pregnancy. I was on bed rest the entire time. Um, you know, not to mention this, the, the hyperstimulation I received at the beginning of the pregnancy made me really sick. I was in the hospital. Then my, um, the, the, the twins were born a month early at, at uh, 36 weeks. Um, they were healthy. I was not. I had lots of complications from both having a C-section and a vaginal delivery in the same day. Wow. Lots of complications from that surgery, healing. My wound opened up while I was trying to breastfeed twins. Anyway, I don't want to sound. But then my, my daughter was part of the five that were frozen for four years. She was in a freezer for four years. She was not in the womb where a human person belonged. The other four didn't make it, you know? And then anyway, and so I didn't learn. So, so, so it, just to put this in perspective, I had determined for myself what was good and what was evil in this, in this stance. I, so I determined I made myself God. This is the original sin. I get to determine, you know, what is good, what is evil. I get to do it my way. So fast forward 10 years or so, I was still living by that, those ideas. You know, I was anxious. I didn't like my life. I didn't feel like a good mom. I didn't feel like a good doctor. I kind of reached this, this crisis where if I was honest, like it, being God is not fun. It's not. It, it, it's too hard. Um, and so I was trying to just to, to make it up, you know, let my feelings guide me, you know, let my ideas guide me. Um, and although on the surface everything looked great, I was inside like withering from my soul. My soul was withering. And then I came to the knowledge I read you know, in a prayer group. I decided, oh, my gosh, I've got to get some help from somewhere outside of me because this isn't working. You know, I am miserable. Um, I'm not thriving like I thought I would. And I heard the church's teaching on so many issues. And to be honest, that was painful to hear. Like all these things that the church was, it sounded like, you know, I had this mean, naggy mother who was just like, you know, and so I had to go to confession. I had to start like just letting all of the armor that I had built up and all the, you know, I had to start being humble and re- recognizing that I had made an, a mess out of my life, and I needed a good parent, mother, the church, to kind of reorient my heart. And and I love when Bishop Barrett Barron says, you know, our lives are not about us, mm-hmm. and we really need to all come to that that understanding that on our own we are so so we we need guidance. We can be so misled by our feelings and our own ideas, 
and we need guidance from the church. And and um, yeah, so that's the that's the short story. It's incredible to hear your story because as it unfolds, you see the pain of everything from harvesting the baby's eggs with the ovarian hyperstimulation that you've shared about here on Trending, how significantly that impacted you. If you want to learn more, we'll post a link to some of the longer form of your story uh, to just the heartbreak that, you know, I know you share in a very factual way, but of all the babies mm-hmm. that were conceived and how those babies were handled, those who whom you cradled in your arms and those who you haven't or no, never will, you know, even just that language of yeah. disposing of children, uh, it's it's sterile. It's painful. And I know you're so candid in opening up a very sensitive area of conversation, but this is the reality of third-party reproductive technologies, both the impact on the woman's body, but also can you speak to the wound of a mother's heart in the no. negligence of your babies? Did you feel that negligence during that time frame or was it until hindsight with all of those lives? And that, that's a no. wound for a woman to carry. Oh, my goodness. Uh, to be honest, I, I was just so with IVF, when you go through it, it's all it moves so fast. And before you know it, you're in a web of uncertainty. Um, and you're just, you're just kind of stuck. And so I didn't have time for grief because I was so worried about the, um, the, the children that were in my womb. Um, so it's taken years to kind of unpack and look at that, that pain and grief. Um, I, I don't think it was until, to be honest, I was at the NAPRO training as a medical consultant and in that training, um, we, uh, we, we are actually we go through the steps of IVF um, and unpack all the moral kind of issues with it. And it was really painful to look at that and recognize. I think it really hit me then um, as I recognized the, the gravity but of what I did, my choices, my grasping at motherhood, you know, what it it. it, it it wounded me because every time we do something against God's will, it hurts us. It makes us kind of less, oh, less human, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so I recognize that. I recognize my children. I just pray. I, I, I pray for them. I pray to them. You know, I don't know where they are. You know, um, I pray that they're with the Lord. We don't know for sure. Um, but um, but it just humbles me, I guess. It just, it, it humbles me because I know that without God, there's no telling what I'll do and who I'll hurt, really. <laughs> really. I want yeah. to hear your thoughts because what you're talking about is, it sounds like you know, that realization of what happened in the process of IVF doesn't hit a lot of people sometimes till long term. Uh, but yeah. many, it does hit early on because there are many men and women who in this attempt to conceive children are never able to conceive. It's a false promise. It's a very low success rate. And when the success rates are higher, when we actually see pregnancies achieve, it's usually after multiple rounds of IVF. It sounds like, like you said, medically for you, this as a medical treatment was effective. 25 babies in the early stages yeah. of development as embryos came about. But for a lot of women, I'll talk to husbands. I run into them all the time. Well, where they'll share their wives are low functioning. They tried to go through rounds of IVF, never had a child. And the trauma 
is so painful. They're, the wives are not really interactive in society. They're struggling with the pain. It's a severe yeah. wound. I think of people in the media today who have gone through this or in Hollywood. I think of Julianne Huff, who was on Dancing with the Stars, and she was in the film Footloose and others. We see their stories in... Their marriages are destroyed. Many things happen. But what I would like to do, Dr. Caldwell, if you're just joining me, you're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. Dr. Susan Caldwell shared her story of IVF and coming to terms with the fact that the church is opposed to IVF and why she wouldn't recommend it to anyone. She shared that story before. I was written this week by a few different people, one of whom was a man named Jonathan. And he's really hurt by what I'm sharing that the church teaches. And I always present this. If you disagree with me on something, I welcome the disagreement, the controversy. Let's talk about it. And this man shared his story of testicular cancer and how they've conceived a baby thanks to the fact that he banked his sperm and he's upset that I'm opposing IVF yet that when that's a means for many people of having children he said you're making people either feel guilty about their perfectly normal choices or preventing them from having a family by discouraging them from choosing IVF etc he said your view is archaic and sick this is a response we're hearing from a lot of people today I'd love to hear your thoughts Mm. in response to this in mm. general, and just to, your heart and understand where the church teaches and coming to embrace that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I get it. I totally get it. Again, you know, I was coming from, I don't, you know, don't, know where, don't know where Jonathan is in terms of his faith, but I mean, this does seem like what kind of cool church would, you know, withhold this from, you know, a person to have a child, you know, this desire to be a father after this horrible battle with cancer. There's no telling what he had to go through, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And then here he is trying to live a normal life. I get it. I get it. Mm -hmm. I get it. But what the church holds up, and and I guess, you know, I I understand, and I think think at some level we all wrestle. Every single one of us wrestles with, I want something that God says I cannot have. That is every human's per every human's experience in the Bible, in the Old Testament. You know, why did Abraham um, try to kill, tell Abraham to kill his own son that he had waited for forever, this promise? You know, in other words, God often does this, you know, to us to help us grow and stretch our faith to where he brings us to this brink of our own limitations and our desires in order to stretch them to provide for us in a way that we cannot imagine for ourselves. Um, And so I guess I've just learned this over and over again because I was in such a closed mindset back in the day about I want this and God is like a vending machine that needs to give me what I want. Um, But the truth is the the, the child, so nobody is owed a child. Right. Mm-hmm. The catechism in, tw- in um, paragraph 2378 says a child is not something owed to one, but is a gift. And the child has a right the, the parent does not have a right to have a child, but the child has a right to be the fruit of a specific act of the conjugal love of his parents. Mm-hmm. And so in Jonathan's case, you know, he was, you know, if, if, if I'm not sure what his his um, if he didn't have sperm, I'm not sure exactly what the situation is, but perhaps he didn't have sperm and therefore he couldn't be a father through a natural act with his wife does not would not mean that his his love would not be fruitful. Right. It just means that God has a different plan for his spirit, for his fatherhood. I don't know what that would look like, but 
but you know, God's ways are not our ways. And it's, and, and all of us, again, have to reach a, a place where there's a mystery of, we are just too, um, we don't know. We don't know why God's not giving us everything we want. Mm-hmm. But I know as a parent, if I gave my kids everything they wanted, oh my goodness, right? I mean, we can't, you know, so my point <laughs> is, this is something I personally wrestled with because, you know, I really um, believed for a long time that I, what I did, there was no problem with what I did. I have children, God loves children, everything's fine. Let's put it behind us, right? And mm-hmm. so it, this is just an invitation for Jonathan to wrestle, you know, just like mm-hmm. all of us have to wrestle. Um, and the catechism is a great source. Um, there's a lot of great sources out there, but I, I don't know where he is. You know, I don't know where he is. I recommend the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith document, Donum Vitae, which we've been yeah. really explaining this week on this topic of fertility treatment. In my challenge, I wrote Jonathan back, and I hope he's listening. I invited him to share, listen to your testimony as you share it. I think all of us, when facing what the church teaches. Sometimes we look at things in hindsight and have to face the remorse of how we have not aligned our day-to-day lives with what God has asked of us. That there mm-hmm. can be a massive chasm. And so in hindsight, we have to face the humility of asking forgiveness. And then there are other times where we're facing something that's painful in our lives. And we don't want to follow what we know the church teaches or what we're finding as we t- ask questions that the church has taught, whether it's on IVF, intrauterine insemination, gift, maybe it's a gay lifestyle. I don't know what it is. Maybe you have a child who is presenting himself as a girl and struggling with gender dysphoria. And you hear what the church teaches and you're angered by it. You're upset. But my thoughts, Dr. Caldwell, are this every single day we make choices that don't follow the moral order, the blueprint God has for our lives. I do it, but that doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that we just throw out what the church teaches just because I struggle to live up to a particular area of the church's teaching. Or maybe I've been misguided by a representative of the church who's not adequately teaching what the church teaches. We were talking to a woman earlier in the week about her story and about how she was encouraged by a Catholic priest to live a gay lifestyle, a lesbian lifestyle. You can hear that testimony. We'll post a link to Kim Zembar's testimony. Uh, But at the end of the day, we still have to strive time and time again to seek out what God's asking for us. And that really requires humility and sacrifice, Dr. Caldwell. And I see Mm -hmm. that in so much of your story. I think sometimes that humility is the hardest part to humbly recognize Mm. there is a better way and to humbly ask forgiveness. And this is why I love when you were sharing your story, when you started to unravel the reality of what had happened because you were unhappy years after the IVF. The first thing you did was after experiencing that painful news of many of the church's teachings, you went running to confession. Can you briefly Mm -hmm. share what it was like for you and what the hurdle was that took you eventually to confession? Oh, man. You know, when I when I entered this uh, prayer group, it was a mom's group at church. Um, I just realized that I had really been estranged. You know, I really felt like I grew up in the church um, and got received my sacraments and then kind of graduated, you know, after confirmation, like so many of us do, and then got no more education. And then I was hit by this just this immense love I just felt this love that had had been kind of it's there for me but I hadn't been you know open to it 
Um, and I recognized that, that that was the big gap was confession. You know, I had to humble myself to say that, you know what, over and over and over again, I've taken it upon myself to determine what was right and what was wrong because society or medical school or my own misguided conscience said it was right and okay. And quote unquote, everybody was doing it and nobody told me it was a problem. Right. And so, you know, I just remember like, I've got to go. I didn't want to go to confession. I didn't want to, it made me feel so you know, shameful and, you know, and, and thinking about it, you know, oh my gosh, I've got to go tell this priest and what is he going to think of me and, and all that. And, you know, I went and I, and I remember just saying everything, just saying everything I could think of. Um, and then slowly, but slowly, <laughs> you know, that, that it wasn't like an instant, you know, but slowly and slowly I thought, you know, I, need so much grace. I need so much healing because all these wounds that are accumulated because I've gone outside of God's plan and I've hurt myself. And the church is a good mother and the church says, don't because she doesn't want us to hurt ourselves. And I was hurt and I was hurt. And so I began a regular, you know, uh, confession practice and it became so much easier to go and so much easier to be brought back into the heart of God. Praise God. And so God. it was beautiful. Yes. And it is beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so, and it's still hard to go to confession. You know, I don't want to believe that I'm wrong. You know, I don't want to believe that I'm, you know, but it's, but we are, we're human and we're just little children and God knows it. And he loves us. I don't have an answer for the crisis of infertility, but I know that the cross of infertility is painful and God asks us to carry crosses in many various and diverse ways. But the church's teaching is very clear that we always use good means to achieve good ends. In other words, the means don't justify the ends. Even with that said, I think the church, we have to recognize, still celebrates new life, even those lives that have come through IVF and other practices that the church objects to. The church celebrates the person, but not the things we do, the way we do them. And I think that makes sense, and we have to honor that. And I will comment briefly, two comments. In the face of infertility, there are many diagnoses we're hearing of of seemingly infertility, that people can't have children. Dr. Caldwell, you're an physician. Normally, you're here talking about how having babies is possible in the face of endometriosis, in the face of polycystic ovarian syndrome, and other health issues. So we'll put a plug in some information online on social media in the episode notes for na- finding a physician, for getting a second opinion and information, but also... I challenge people, even in the face of the miraculous, I look at Jonathan's story, he couldn't continue to produce sperm. That's significant, that, right? That's that, that medical diagnosis of absolute infertility. Yet, as people of faith, I always challenge this question, do we not believe in the miraculous? And that even if this is a cross God is calling us to, that there's a possibility that we stay in this where it is and embrace it. Or there's a possibility that in God's timing, like Sarah in the Old Testament, Elizabeth in the New Testament, we can see miraculous stories of babies who are being conceived. I hear of these stories. I know you may too. We have to trust in the mercy and providence of God, but that takes a whole lot of humility. Dr. Caldwell, thank you for joining me today with your story. Check her out at drsusancaldwell.com. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. 
If you've enjoyed the Theology of the Body series with me here on Trending, let me know. If you have questions, if you're reading along, I would love to hear from you. The podcast goes up on Saturday of all week content of Theology of the Body. Today we're diving into talks 30 through 33 and it's all about domination and appropriation. We hear a lot about cultural appropriation today, but today it didn't start with cultural appropriation. It started with the appropriation of other people, the exploitation of other people. So we turn our gaze with Pope St. John Paul II to Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Those words at the fall of the consequence of severing that life, life of grace and the image of God from our understanding of ourselves and each other. We read, your desire shall be for your husband, but he will dominate you. Another interpretation says he will rule over you or lord it over you. And so what we're talking about today is that sense of domination of not just men over women, but we'll see how even that flips on its back of women over men. And that desire that a woman has for her husband, how that desire of disorientation and that domination is so damaging for our relationships. A person becomes, in this sense, through domination and desire, a person becomes an object of appropriation. To appropriate, to take. We look at something as mine. Pope St. John Paul II spends a ton of his time in this section of the Theology of the Body just talking about the word my, how we refer to something as not just mine, but my spouse, my this, my that, and how there can be a good interpretation of my, but often you just look at my greedy little two-and-a-half-year-old who will say mine and my toy, my this, my that, endlessly ad nauseum, if I don't correct it. Yet we have this childish spirituality as a result of the fall that unless we turn toward God and run to his graces and the sacraments, we struggle because we have that lost sense of the understanding of the gift of our lives, who and what we are and who and what others are in receiving them. The difference between what Pope St. John Paul II calls a law of property and versus an object of passion. He starts to unpack these ideas of how we should be looking at someone as, or sorry, not someone, but we should look at things and people and understand this overarching idea of possession, this law of possession, in the respect that we have a sense of responsibility. We have a, a different approach in the respect that something or someone specifically belongs to another in a positive, in a positive definition, rather than this objective possession type of mindset. And he says a possession you put at your service, that is we dispose of possessions as we choose, versus Pope St. John Paul II is calling us to a mindset of a sense of belonging, which would connotate this idea of responsibility and love. Pope St. John Paul II says, Concupiscence pushes man toward the possession of the other as an object and pushes him toward enjoyment. So what he's saying is that we suddenly look at someone else as an object to be enjoyed rather than a person to belong, to belong to one another. He goes on to say that sense of objectifying and enjoying depersonalizes the person and misses the spousal meaning of the body. That is, seeking yourself and others as a gift. Pope St. John Paul II is directing us to value 
the other human being as in a way that is disinterested, looking at them as a gift rather than perpetually objectifying, taking and using and appropriating. He actually talks about how we appropriate other people. He t emphasizes that this is essential toward our human anthropology and that we understand what he's explained, he explains this in his book, Love and Responsibility, as well, that a person is never a means to an end. We shouldn't look at people as objects to be sought after. We shouldn't look at people as a means to get what we want, enjoyment, pleasure, to fulfill our desire, to dominate. We should always look at other people as people to be loved, embraced, to give ourselves to and to receive that's where he uses that language of belonging that instead of having this mindset where he says we look at people as objects and possessions to have that law of property, that law of responsibility, an all-embracing mindset. A little bit of, I think, a tangent in some respects, but I think relevant is that today we always focus on being a consumer of things, a consumer of people. We want people to fit perfectly into the box of our expectation and desire. And I remember this made me think of sometimes, you know, people, when they come to church, when they go to mass, they're not always there completely and subscribing to everything the church teaches or understanding the right way to dress or whatever it might be. And I was thinking about how a priest friend of mine was recently telling me a story about this young woman who kept coming to mass and she was dressed really inappropriately. And she'd sit right there on the front on the side, just to the side of the altar and he noticed, but he thought, you know, it's a good thing that she's coming to Mass. And and one day, suddenly, she wasn't there. And it happened to be within that same week, someone from the church, a woman came up and said, Oh, I told that woman who kept, kept coming up to the church and sitting right in front of you so inappropriately that she shouldn't come here dressed like that. And she told her off, and lo and behold, the woman stopped coming to church. Never came again. And it made me think of how we want people to fit into even the boxes of correctness. We want their full and perfect conversion. And if we don't think that they are meeting that conversion the way it should be met, we get angry. We tell them off. And yet there's a culture where we need to return the, to this idea of agreeing to disagree and still embracing the person. Still allowing someone to have that sense, as Pope St. John Paul II said, of belonging. Ironically, I have a similar story right now while I'm going to Mass. There, there's a young couple who keeps sitting just to the right of me in the church pew. And this couple does not look like a couple you would expect to be going to Sunday Mass. And again, these expectations that we have. Tattooed, piercings. The woman's wearing a very scandalous dress. But I'll tell you what, I can tell that she's trying to dress up and nicely for Mass, even though... It obviously is apparent that she doesn't know what it means to dress up nicely, but they keep coming week after week after week. I think it's incredible. I think it's awesome. I pray no one harasses them, and I hope people smile and acknowledge them and welcome them as they see them. It makes me think of another story a couple years ago, because this is all about embracing, making people feel like they belong. Still expecting conversion, but allowing that conversion, that change of clothing and modesty to unfold. A couple years ago when I was living in the Midwest, there was a couple that would be at Mass each day. They were pregnant, and one day the woman came with her baby. They had had a baby. Both showed up with piercings and tattoos and dressed, again, not like you would expect people to dress, in rather a gothic way. And as the weeks 
went by, one after another, I saw an incredible transformation. People were kind to them and welcoming and said hello. I saw the young woman, which, by the way, before had dressed rather gender neutral, I guess you could say, started to dress in a more feminine way, started to dress up for mass. Both of them started to dress for the occasion. The, the father of the baby started to dress in a suit. The woman was dressing in a presentable way that's appropriate for church. They started removing their piercings for mass. It was a really neat unfolding to see over the course of a year or so. But that can't happen if we don't allow people to have a sense of belonging while still expecting a transformation. What I'm getting at is that we often objectify strangers, even within our own churches, not just our spouses or people we're looking to date or are interested in, but our consumer mindsets often get in the way in general. My things, my way, even the good things, my way, rather than sometimes allowing them to unfold. Getting back to this passage in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, your desire shall be for your husband, but he will dominate you. We're focusing on the idea of desire and domination. With that idea of domination, Pope St. John Paul II comments and says, if a man relates to a woman in such a way that he considers her only as an object to appropriate and not as a gift, he condemns himself at the same time to become on his part too only an object of appropriation for her and not a gift. In other words, if a man tries to dominate and appropriate a woman, it flips on its back and he too becomes an object to be used, to be appropriated, to be taken. Pope St. John Paul II talks about this terrain of appropriation of the person and the problem with it. He says the human body in its masculinity and femininity has almost lost the power of expressing love. Instead, we demonstrate domination, desire, taking. The good news is, is that the law of God is written on our hearts. St. Paul talks about this in Romans. The prophets speak of this in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The spousal meaning of the body, Pope St. John Paul II says, has not fully been for, become totally foreign to us. So we can still understand the value and gift of our bodies. It's not been completely suffocated, he says. It's only habitually threatened. He says the heart has become a battlefield between love and concupiscence. The more concupiscence dominates the heart, the less the heart experiences the spousal meaning of the body. Therefore, he says, the less sensitive the heart becomes to this understanding of the gift of the person. So, Pope St. John Paul II saying, there's good news. The spousal meaning of the body, the gift of self, God's intention for the human person isn't totally foreign to us. It's written on our hearts, but there's a battle. A battlefield for what is authentic, true love. And the more we give in to sin, the less sensitive we become to embracing the other and the gift of another person. This is where he then starts to talk about desire more. To understand the significance of desire. And it's challenging for me to read this section in the respect that I think that we need to reevaluate desire. We talk a lot about disordered desires and how we need to not chase after our desires. But if we look at the entire moral tradition of the Catholic Church, although we know there's a difference between good desires and bad desires, 
the church actually encourages us even to deny ourselves those good things that we desire, to be temperate. In fact, the Catholic Church teaching for centuries, really prior to the last century, we used to hear a lot more about denying ourselves, even sweet foods, denying ourselves the salt in our foods. The food culture we live in today would be shocking to people 50 or 100 years ago in the sense that we have run away with our desires. And if we want to return to a greater sense of God's view for our lives, we need to embrace that understanding that desire, while they can be good, can also be set aside. Fasting is a good thing, not just during Lent. Offering someone else your portion. That taming of the senses is so important. And we can come back to an interior state of freedom, which we'll talk about freedom next week here on Trending. And understand this great grace that God is offering to us in a sacramental life to reorient the God-given vision of the body. We're talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. I love books, and one of the neatest things as a mom has been to pass that love for books on to my children. I love reading to my girls. It's our favorite pastime. We read not just at the end of the day. Sometimes we don't always read at the end of the day, but we read all day long. It's often the first thing my daughter wants to do when she wakes up with bleary eyes, and I love it. Jessica Thornton's joining me today from the Lion and Lamb Book Club. She's a content manager there, uh, curating books for a really neat book box that you can pick up. There are different age ranges. There is a preteen one, an age five to eight box, as well as an age zero to four. I just got one of these boxes that's called the Duckling Box of some of these younger kids' books. And there are some faith-based books, others that teach good lessons, and others just really sweet books in general. But Jessica Thornton's here with me now to talk about why reading to your children is so important. Jessica, talk to me a little bit about the benefits that both babies and children receive in reading. Hi, Timory. I'm so excited to be back on the show. Um, It's funny that you want to talk about this because the Atlantic Monthly Journal just did an article on why kids aren't falling in love with reading anymore. And um, the conclusion the article came to uh, had nothing to do with video games, surprisingly. That was their, like, uh, hook bait or, you know, Mm -hmm. clickbait line. It's not video games. Click here and read the article. But it was about testing that in schools, teachers have to teach to the test or at least in public schools Mm -hmm. or schools Mm -hmm. that do lots and lots of state testing. And so they're not even reading whole books. They're reading excerpts of books to learn specific analytical skills. They're not just falling in love with reading because the books are fun. Uh, which I thought was a super sad take on what's going on in education today. Um, But perhaps it's true. I don't, my kids don't go to school like that. And uh, I have some readers and I have some non-readers, but I think that what really helps a kid fall in love with reading is being read to. And I know that a lot of libraries are doing a program called A Thousand Books Before Kindergarten And they're trying to encourage young families to read to their little ones and to track how many books a day they read to their little ones and try to hit 1,000 books before kindergarten. I think that's wonderful. 
I think that kids really think about reading as an enjoyable pastime, A, when they are read to, and B, when they see their family members reading for enjoyment. I love that you mentioned even that study about how kids aren't reading full books today. This is part of the reason why they're not enjoying or loving reading books. As a mom, I started reading books to my baby, my first daughter, and now my second. And you sometimes wonder, okay, I'm reading books, and this baby doesn't really know any language. Uh, All they have is me, but it's incredible. They learn, studies are pointing to everything from language skills to they start to learn knowledge of the world words they have emotional learning that occurs with babies of that imitation and quandary while they watch your facial reactions to different ideas and they make connections to things and words and ideas even the sensory experience of sitting on a parent's lap and hearing the parent's voice that connection for their brain and the development of their brain the studies are phenomenal it helps Even studies show that it helps with future success in schools when children are read to, as you're indicating, Jessica. Jessica, I know that you have, how many children do you have, actually? I don't know how many. I have six. You have six children. Now, did you read to all of them as babies? Do they like reading? Tell me a little bit about it. All the time. All the time. And my husband, I was the picture book reader, but my husband is the bedtime. He reads books with no pictures, like, over months, like, One of his favorites is Rudyard Kipling's The Jungle Book. But he's read The Chronicles of Narnia and the Little House series over and over and over to our children uh, throughout decades because my oldest is 27. So um, he has done a bulk of the reading, especially when they're old enough to read on their own. I don't really do that lap time picture book thing anymore when they're in school. And my youngest is nine now. She still wants me to read a picture book to her occasionally but she's into boxcar children. Um, So he's doing a lot more of the reading at an older age than I am. I think think it's really neat now too, because we're hearing about a lot of books. I think of a book on St. Genevieve and another one on St. Padre Pio that I think uh, Campbell's the last name. We'll have to find links to them. We interviewed him here on Trending. But my daughter, even my two-year-old has loved, she begged me to read to her this non-picture book of St. Genevieve that is, you know, a historical fiction of the story of St. Genevieve. Phenomenal book, and she sits there through it, but it's because we have cultivated that imagination. I think that's a gift of reading that's been lost. I know a lot of people like to whip out the iPad. People are doing a lot of book apps now, which is great. Reading in general is good, but there is a lot of research out there indicating that when you read with a physical book, it's actually more meaningful and interactive for the child and the parent. So just food for thought, talk to me a little bit about your book boxes and how this has been part of the inspiration for putting together your awesome book box club, a Catholic book box club for children in different age categories. Well, that's that's it in a nugget. It's a Catholic book box club. There are lots of secular book clubs where you get a monthly selection of books, usually from a single publisher. So what's unique about our box is that it's from a Catholic perspective, and I use books from every publisher and any publisher, some of the big mainstream secular publishers, some of the tiny boutique Catholic publishers. But in general, we try to put two Catholic books and two secular books in each box. Now the box you got, I believe it had five books in it. And so that is always a good time when I can fit five books in the box. Um, And 
we do have like an outline of goals. So ideally every box would come with a Catholic classic. So an older Catholic book, a newer Catholic book, a secular classic and a newer secular book. Now, not all of those buttons get hit every time because sometimes there's just not anything new and it's, you know, for a specific time period or I'm looking for a theme, but um, in general, that's the general goal. And our secular books are all vetted to make sure that they only hold ideas that would not be in conflict with our Catholic faith. Yes. Yep. And I love your latest book box. I just got it. We're reading. And in fact, my daughter has clung to a couple of these books. My favorite is Follow Me Flow. And it's not anything that's this Catholic content, but it's sound and and no controversy with our faith, which is challenging. If you go to the bookstore today, my jaw drops if you pick up a lot of the books you've got to read through books before you buy them for your children. And I'm talking about books for babies. But this story is about a little ducky named Flo who is needing to learn to follow what her parents ask her. And so it chronicles the story of little ducky Flo and her daddy going to visit the aunt ducky's nest. And it is absolutely Adorable. I think this is one of my favorite books right now, and it's there in the book box. And what I like, too, about your program is that with your program, you have material. So not just the books, but it comes with questions for bedtime. So maybe you want to encourage your kid to think a little bit about what they're reading. You actually provide age-appropriate questions to ask your children about the books and to have that dialogue with them about the lesson that was in the book itself. Right. A follow me flow is one of my favorites too. There is a YouTube video of the author reading the book and he sings the songs. So you have to check it out because I can't read the book now without hearing the melodies he uses for singing the songs. It's super sweet. I'll have to look up that video. We'll post on social media because that'll be cute for those who are interested because I'm not a singer and I'm kind of trying to make up my own way for the Daddy Duck song. Right. (laughs) I like this too because I see a lot of books out there. I've bought them for moms and babies. A lot of them, you know, my daughter, every mommy and baby, whether it's a mommy panda and a baby panda, everyone is me and her. And yet this one is a daddy and kid book, which I think is really neat because you don't see as many of those. That's right. And I was very careful to make sure that, um, you know, it's just one dad because sometimes they might (laughs) slip in two dads. Uh, And my kids did say, well, there's no mom in the book. And I said, well, that, that doesn't mean there isn't a mom. It's just not in this story. Check out these Catholic books at catholic.store. It's a great book box. It could be a great present if you're a parent, a godparent, a grandparent. Check them out again, catholic.store. I love these books. Jessica Thornton, thank you for joining me. Up next is the Family Rosary Across America.